You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Odessa, Texas. You can connect with us online by visiting RedeemerChurchOdessa.org. Good morning. My name is Robert uh, with uh, my wife, Heather. We're in Mark and Yachty's group, and today I'm going to be reading Ruth 19 through 22. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. The grass wither, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Thank you, Robert. Hey, good morning. It's good to be with you. My name's Tanner House. I'm the lead pastor here at Redeemer Church Odessa. If you're a guest, thank you so much for being here. There's a connect card under your chair. If you would take a minute, fill that out. We would love an opportunity to connect with you, to see how we could serve you, and to see how we could get you plugged into the life of the body. And as Robert just read, we're going to be in Ruth 1, beginning in verse 19, and we use the ESV, so if you're on your phone or your tablet, uh, you can follow along that way, or if you need a physical Bible, you can raise your hand and Chad would be happy to bring you one. So we've been in a series in Ruth the last three weeks, and so just before we jump into this text today, we need to review our last couple of Sundays so that we're all on the same page. Ruth is set during the time of the book of Judges. The book of Judges is right before Ruth, and it can be summed up this way. Judges 21-25 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So what's going on in the book of Judges is you have the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, and they are consistently wandering away from God by sinning, by being disobedient to God. So God would then send his judgment upon them through a foreign oppressor. And oftentimes this judgment was accompanied with plagues like a famine, pestilence, stuff like that. So this foreign oppressor would be in the land. The nation would then repent of their unbelief, repent of their disobedience, turn away from their idol worship, turn away from their sin, and God would raise up a judge then to execute or run off the foreign oppressor, and then the blessing of the Lord would be restored to the land, and then the cycle would start over. And this went on for about 400 years of history in the nation of Israel. And so the book of Judges then gives us a highlight of Israel at a national and political level, and, and the book of Ruth is zooming in on one family during this time. This family is headed by a man named Elimelech, whose name means, my God is king, and ironically, he functions as if God is not his king at all. He moves his family during a famine in Bethlehem. He moves his family in disobedience to the pagan nation of Moab, where his sons marry pagan women, and then Elimelech and his sons both, they all die. 
leaving Naomi in a foreign country with two idol-worshiping daughters-in-law. And while she's there, Naomi hears that the famine in Bethlehem has subsided, the famine in Judah has subsided, and so she makes the decision to head back to the promised land. So with her two pagan daughter-in-laws in tow, they take off for Judah. And while they're en route, she tries to convince her two daughters-in-law, Naomi, I mean Ruth and, and Orpah, to go back. She says, return to your moms, return to your gods, and return to your customs. And she convinces Orpah to go. Orpah returns to Moab and off the pages of Scripture forever, but she fails to convince Ruth. The text says that Ruth clings to Naomi, and she says some of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture. Ruth 1, 16-17 says this, But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Ruth is pledging her loyalty, her commitment in a covenant bond, promised bond to her mother-in-law. She is forsaking her gods. She is forsaking her family. She is forsaking the only land she has ever known, the only home she has ever known, in order to worship the God of Israel, in order to worship Naomi's God, in order to worship the one true God. She makes a pledge of loyalty, and that pledge is only allowed to be broken by death. This is a binding love. It's like the kind of love that we see in a marriage. And then Naomi responds like this, verse 18. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. This doesn't mean that Naomi stopped trying. This means that Naomi stopped talking altogether. Literally in the Hebrew, the, the verse reads like this. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, Naomi stopped talking to her. You can almost feel it like Ruth says, where you go, I will go. And Naomi's like, ugh. And on the road they go. Because Naomi is so bitter, and her bitterness is clouding her view of God's goodness to her. So this is what I want to wrestle with this morning again. I want us to see how we are just like Naomi. We are just like Naomi in the midst of struggle and in the midst of pain. And when life squeezes us and when we're lonely or when we're anxious or when we feel like God is against us, how do we respond? Ruth is broken up into four acts, like a play. And Naomi is a picture in this first act of Ruth of a person who can't see anything but her circumstances. She has little to no regard for Ruth. And at this point in the story, Naomi is depressed because of the deaths in her family, which is certainly understandable. And when we're suffering, though, church, when we're suffering, when we're struggling, we don't see things clearly. We don't see things clearly, and we don't always suffer well at times. So I want us to lean into that a little bit this morning. 
And hopefully this will be the last sermon for a couple weeks where suffering is the theme. Uh, The other thing I want us to engage with in this text this morning is this. What is our view of others? One of the major themes in the book of Ruth is that God is pleased to call people from every nation to himself. And as God's people, the church, we ought to be diligent in engaging with the lostness around us. And man, I think Bible Belt, churchianity, Christian culture, whatever, really struggles here, if we're honest. So I want this text to kind of push on us a little bit. And then I want this text to really encourage us to just be bold um, in our lives. And so let's pray, and then we're going to dive into our text this morning. Lord Jesus, we need you. Lord, I ask that you would show us our great need for you. Lord, I pray for the weak and the wounded, heavy, laden brother and sister in this room this morning. Lord, I pray for the struggling and suffering saints in your church this morning. Lord, lift our chins. Help us to see your goodness in the midst of hard living. Help us to see your nearness in the midst of pain and suffering. Lord, when all feels hopeless, Show us that you have not abandoned us, Lord, but that you are working for our good and that you are working for your glory. Church, I'd ask if you're willing that you would pray for yourselves. That regardless of what's going on in your life right this second, that you would leave that at the foot of the cross and cling to Jesus in worship that the Lord would help you to see beyond your circumstances and to see his goodness and his nearness to you. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more. Lord, we trust you. Help us to trust you more. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, Ruth 1, beginning in verse 19, it says, So the two of them, that's Ruth and Naomi, went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? So picking up where we left off last week, Naomi and Ruth are continuing on their way from Moab to Bethlehem. And we're not given any details as to what this journey was like relationally. I'm sure it was hard physically. I don't know how far that is, but it's a long walk and they don't have cars. But we're not given any indication of what the, what the discussion was like. But I am prone to think, because I love awkwardness and awkward tension, I am prone to think that there is a palpable tension in the air. Ruth is supposed to go back, and she will not. I'm also prone to think that Naomi just walks along in silence for a good majority of the way, just giving Ruth the silent treatment. She is so bitter, and we're about to see how bitter she really is. And she's probably thinking as she's walking along, nothing is going right. I can't get anything I want. This chick won't leave me alone. And now I have to figure out how to provide for both of us. Ruth's comforting words in the previous scene 
of the story do not seem to comfort Naomi in the slightest. But rather, they seem to get on Naomi's nerves and put her in a sour mood. We also have Ruth in this scene, who is making a commitment to be with Naomi and to lovingly endure with Naomi. Naomi is being difficult, and Ruth is choosing to stay in the fight with her in spite of Naomi. And sometimes, church, loving people the way Jesus loves people looks a lot like this. Patient and faithful endurance, even walking for miles and miles in silence. Ruth is loving Naomi through her sadness. Naomi is returning to Bethlehem and Judah, but she is returning much differently from the way she left 10 plus years ago. She left with a husband and two sons, and now she returns with only this Moabitess. She's got this Moabitess tag along walking behind her. And that's very awkward because from the tone in this verse, we can start to imply some ethnic and racial tensions taking place as they return. The narrator writes in verse 19 with a lot of plural language, like more than one person. She says the, the narrator says, the two women, they came to Bethlehem, and when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was abuzz because of them. And these townswomen who have eyes can obviously see that Naomi is not alone. And they don't say, hey, Naomi, who's your friend there? They just don't acknowledge Ruth's presence at all. Remember last week how we talked about Ruth? She was about to struggle mightily in Israel simply by virtue of her birth. She is from Moab. She is from a pagan nation. She is a different race, a different nationality, and this group of people are enemies to the nation of Israel. Ruth isn't just going to have a tough go of it in Israel. She is by all means going to be hated in Israel because she is from a people group, a different race, a different ethnic group, enemies of the nation. Her life is going to be exceptionally hard and she willingly continues to go with Naomi knowing full well what she is walking into any of you from a small town yeah maple maple texas yeah uh, the smaller the town the less there is to do and so it seems like when there's not anything to do, the gossip will is, is a lot louder and grinding a lot quicker. It's always turning. And in the Old Testament days, this seems to be true as well. Outsiders are detected immediately. Like anytime the new kid moved to town, everybody knew about it in, in those small towns. Well, here's Ruth and Naomi. <laughs> Who's this lady? Um, Ian Drugid says, there seems to be an unspoken communal conspiracy to not talk about the Moabitess. We're not going to acknowledge the Moabitess. Who knows what kind of private conversations they're having at their houses or like the internal judgment they're having towards Ruth and Naomi. Surely they're sympathetic to Naomi, right? She's one of their own. 
And perhaps there is some judgment as Ruth carries with her the stains, the physical stains of Naomi's family's disobedience during their time in Moab. Like the Texas translation here is probably like, Naomi, bless your heart. Bless your heart. You know, if anyone ever says that to you, just this is a little free piece of pastoral advice. They're pandering to you a little bit. Bless your dumb little heart, Naomi. Oh, you poor thing. That's what's happening here. Let's set the scene a little further. Put yourself in their position. Have you ever seen a friend or a relative after years of not seeing a friend or a relative? Like, I have a cousin that I see like once every 15 years or so. In our social media age, where we're like artificially connected to absolutely everyone, maybe this loses some of its force. But just imagine what it would be like to have little word from your friend, your relative from long ago, and then all of a sudden there, there this person is standing in front of you. A couple of months ago, I ran into this kid um, that I used to play baseball with. And by kid, I should say he's now in his mid-30s with a wife and some kids like me. And I haven't seen him since 2006. And there in this store in Midland, two grown men just hugging it out and jumping up and down. Like, I saw him and I shouted. I was like, hey! And he was like, hey! And we ran up and hugged each other and caught up for a couple minutes, and it was cool. This is sort of what's taking place here. There seems to be some excitement in this town. Hey, Naomi's back. And look at how Naomi responds. Naomi, in verse 20, says to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Maybe you remember from week one. Maybe you don't. Maybe you weren't here. That's cool. But Naomi means pleasant or sweet. Mara, on the other hand, means bitter. A few things to take note of here, though. Naomi is not offering any contrition on her part. She's not offering any repentance for her and her husband's disobedience. Rather, she is completely blame-shifting. She is accusing God as being the source of her problem. And this is as old as the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve fell in Genesis 3 and they were confronted about it, Adam says, God, the woman you gave me, she did it. She gave me the fruit and I ate then God confronts Eve, and Eve says, no, no, the serpent, the serpent tricked me. There's no confession, there's no acknowledgement of wrong, just blame shifting. No accountability whatsoever, and that is still true for a lot of us today. Just think about it. If somebody confronts you in your disobedience or your unwise choices, oftentimes our first response is defensiveness. Anybody else? Just me? Okay, cool. Um, When our life isn't what we want it to be or what we thought it was supposed to be, we blame others or we blame God. Naomi again so bitter. 
She cannot see any possible explanation other than God is testifying against me in some cosmic courtroom. Tony Morita says that Naomi uses the language of testifying, legal language as it is, because she knows that God actually does have a valid claim against her. She left Bethlehem. She stayed in Moab. Her sons married foreign wives. Wives that they were told not to marry by the law of Moses. So here she is. And she's angry with God. And she's letting everyone know about it. And man, say what you will about Naomi. She is no atheist. I'd actually take her theology over like the weak, touchy-feely type theology that a lot of Western churches are peddling around today. She's not blaming happenstance. She's not blaming the universe. She's not calling it bad luck. She's not blaming weak faith even. And while she doesn't see things clearly or completely, she does know that God is involved in her situation. She does not have a correct view of God right now. She can only see his judgment on her, not his grace and compassion to her. So she's failing to see God's commitment to his people. She acknowledges that God has power. And at the same time, she's resenting that power in her life. She is either forgotten or she is neglecting his nature and his character. Daniel Block says, Naomi does indeed ascribe sovereignty to God, meaning like God's control, God's kingly reign, God's rule. She is ascribing ascribing sovereignty to God. But this is a sovereignty without grace, an omnipotent power without compassion, a judicial will without mercy. She says, call me Mara. Call me bitter. Because Naomi meaning sweet, meaning pleasant, that's not my condition. I'm bitter because God has made me bitter. I want to call your attention back to one of the most famous moments in the Old Testament for a second. In Exodus 15, you see God parting the Red Sea and the nation of Israel walking through on dry ground, making it to the other side. And then the Egyptian army follows them in and God drowns them all. The Lord has delivered Israel out of slavery. Out of the hands of the Egyptians, he has rescued them. They celebrate this moment. And then, in the very same chapter, they turn around and head on their journey towards the promised land. And as one would do in the desert, people get thirsty. They come to this place to drink some water, and they can't because the water is bitter. They call this place Mara because the water is bitter. And having witnessed all of the plagues that led to their exodus, and having just witnessed God parting the Red Sea, shouldn't that have led them to trust? Instead, they grumbled and complained. They're like 36 hours removed from the parting of the Red Sea and slavery. Like 15 verses in your Bible removed. And they've already turned on Moses, and they've already turned on God. 
Naomi should have been reminded of this event in her grumbling, and yet she forgets. She forgets that the Lord does miraculously turn that bitter water into sweet, pleasant, Naomi-like drinkable water for the nation of Israel. Naomi is just like her ancestors, angry with God because of her circumstances. And church, we are guilty of this too. Drugid says this again. At this point, there was no whisper of acknowledgement in her heart of her own responsibility of choosing the path of disobedience that had led her away from the promised land in the first place. Naomi was simply resentful that the greener pastures of Moab, outside of the land of promise, had actually turned into a desert experience for her. And so that's the end of the first act in the book of Ruth. And it ends like this, verse 22. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Naomi is back, and it says, with Ruth the Moabite. This is setting the stage for some ethnic tension that's building. And also, this is setting the stage for some hope for these two women. They arrived back at Bethlehem, which means the house of bread, and they're back at the beginning of the barley harvest. We have hope. Finally, something hopeful for next week. So what does this have to do with any of us? Well, I am really glad you asked. Um, here are some things for your consideration as, you, as we close. I want to give us three things to consider. So we're coming out of our lament series. I wanted to keep this theme of lament and suffering in front of us. That's part of the reason I felt led to preach through Ruth. I feel like a lot of us at various seasons in our life can relate to Naomi a lot. Oftentimes we feel like God is distant from us. Oftentimes we feel like God's upset with us. Oftentimes we feel like God is even absent from us. And we're tempted, like Naomi, that when our circumstances are less than ideal, to blame God. Or to assume that it is because of God. Or we assume that it is because we did something. We oftentimes exhibit such a low view of God and his delight in us. When she tells Ruth and Orpah, when Naomi tells Ruth and Orpah to return to Moab, and may the Lord be compassionate to you, what she's functionally saying is this. Yeah, God is kind, and he is kind towards others. Yeah, God is good at giving gifts, and he's good at giving gifts to others. And God is loving. And God is so loving towards others. But me? He's pretty indifferent towards me. And here's some things I want to tell you, friends. Life is incredibly difficult. We all struggle. We all suffer in a vast variety of ways and in different seasons. And when our first response is to blame God, 
even when or even if the difficulties are a direct result of our own sin, the result then is oftentimes bitterness. And when that is our posture towards God, we will completely miss the reasons that God is perhaps allowing us to struggle in the first place. Naomi is so busy complaining about her emptiness. We too may be so busy complaining about our own emptiness that we may miss the fact that God is the one who has emptied our hands in order that he can fill them with something so much better. Consider the famine. Ruth 1.1, we see a famine in the land. God has lifted the famine. God has not abandoned Naomi. And consider Naomi. She could have stayed in Moab. And she would have missed out on her God-given, divinely appointed role in salvation history. Through her lineage, we see Jesus. We are a lot like Naomi, clinging to the stuff in our life that has no eternal significance. What one commentator calls desperately small treasures or even ridiculous nothings when God has intended for us huge gifts. C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory says this, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that the Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot understand what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Listen, man. Perhaps, perhaps you are trying to satisfy your life, satisfy yourself outside of the will of God. Perhaps you are filling up your life with the pursuit of riches or the pursuit of love found in someone that isn't pushing you towards Jesus or the pursuit of sex or the pursuit of fame or the pursuit of security or the pursuit of a reputation or an image that you're trying to cultivate. And perhaps you're finding yourself feeling empty in, in the pursuit. And man, that's the point. That's partly the point. God sometimes will take those things away from us or God will allow us to remain empty in our pursuit of these things because they are supporting your sin habits. Sometimes he takes things away from us that are good because he wants our lives to be a testimony that even though we are struggling, his goodness is better to us than anything else this world has to offer. The goal of Christianity, true biblical Christianity, is not your comfort. It's that God wants to give good gifts to his kids in order that we may worship him for his glory. And he has done so by giving us the greatest gift of all. He has given us himself. Which leads me to our second consideration today. 
I just want you to consider your identity. The first chapter of Ruth addresses us as people who are just like Orpah and Ruth. There is nothing good in us at birth. We are outsiders of God's grace. By nature, we are children of wrath, dead in our transgressions and sin. Apart from Christ, we are an enemy to God. Maybe you're sitting out there thinking, like, hold up, man. Like, I'm not an enemy of God. I don't hate God. Jesus is my homeboy, if you remember those (laughs) t-shirts. But consider this for a second. Just take a quick overview of of your thought life. Take a quick overview of your actions. Take a quick overview of your internet search history. We are all so selfish by nature. And at our core, we are into ourselves first and foremost. We love ourselves. We love ourselves more than anything else. We love ourselves more than we love God. In and of ourselves, we don't on our own choose to love God. And therefore, apart from a work of God to us, we are enemies of God and would remain as enemies of God because our sin has consequences. When we sin, apart from a relationship with Jesus, we are condemned to hell. But here's some good news. Romans 5.8. But God shows his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God being rich in mercy, God being rich in grace, did not see fit to leave us as we were. We who are natural-born outsiders and therefore enemies of God need the saving work of Jesus to call us into a family and to give us new life that is only found in the safety of the God of Israel. Jesus Christ endured the cross to make a way for us to be saved. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus died for our punishment and was buried and raised and has ascended, defeating sin and death on our behalf. So, I mean, we can continue to seek to try to find life and meaning in our careers, in our relationships, in our financial statuses, and our stuff. Or we can follow the ways of Jesus. And there is grace and mercy for us now. Not just to secure our salvation and get us to heaven later, which is awesome, but it's so we can live for Jesus now. A lot of times, believers in Jesus, that means a lot of hardship because we are choosing the way of the cross of Christ. We are choosing to die to ourselves. We are choosing to follow Jesus. We are leaning on his grace and his forgiveness. It's more than just being baptized. It's more than just showing up to church from time to time. It's a whole life commitment to choose the things of Jesus, to have a deep, meaningful relationship with him through his word, through prayer, and through the gathering together with other believers in the worship of Jesus. Man, we don't get to live a life 
full of hope if we are constantly and consistently living in this pattern of forgetting what God has done for us. When life squeezes us, when life is hard, we are called then to remember the past faithfulness of Jesus to us, who has come to earth, dwelt among us, lived the perfect life we were called to live but didn't and couldn't, and then he died the death we were supposed to die but will never have to because of him. We bring nothing to the table. We bring nothing to Jesus that makes us worthy. The only thing we have is our neediness and our brokenness. God has not forgotten us in the midst of struggle. God is perfecting you in the midst of your struggle, making us more and more like him through himself in spite of us. His past faithfulness to me commands my present trust in him. Church, it is so important. Christian, it is so important that you are reminding yourself of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because suffering finds us all. And if you're not meditating on the word of God and the truths therein, when you're not filling yourselves up with the things of Christ, then your suffering will not produce the good fruit of God. It will not produce the results that God desires of you in your suffering, namely his glory and our good and our growth in Christ. We get to remember God's nature. We get to remember God's character. We get to remember God's goodness. And sometimes if we're honest, it may take us a second or two to get there. But praise God. He is faithful to us even when we are faithless. And out of this life, we're given a new heart and a new life to live not for ourselves any longer, but to then live for him. And that pushes us to mission with him, meaning we are now people who are committed to being used by God to tell others about his great love for us. What we've seen in this point, up to this point in, in Ruth and what we're going to continue to see is God's global concern for the nations. Namely this, God is calling to himself a people for himself from every tribe and nation and tongue on the face of the earth. And frankly, a lot of us show little concern for other people around us. We're all a lot like Naomi, who to this point in the narrative has shown very little concern for the spiritual condition of her Moabite daughter-in-laws. Her relationship to them, at least from this side of the aisle, is very superficial. It's possible she's just assumed they were set in their faith, even though it's a faith that is hopeless, faith in a hopeless system, but she didn't seem that willing to engage them on the deep things of the Lord because her daughters-in-law, by all accounts, seemed like, like pretty good people. They were good wives to her, her sons. So why even bother mess with it? Why, 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 why bother, bother ruffling any feathers? We've been given a call. We've been given a call on this side of the resurrection to go and make disciples of all nations according to the command of Jesus, who is our Lord, our Master, and also our Savior. Church, we have no excuse. When was the last time you had a spiritual conversation with a lost person? For a lot of us, 
The difficulty, if we're honest, a lot of times, the difficulty is that our lives don't look much different from our unbelieving neighbors and coworkers. A lot of us share the same moral and ethic views of the world as our unbelieving friends. We live in this culture out here with a lot of God language, but not a lot of God. If you're consistently and willfully living outside of the will of God, living in sin, living in disobedience to God, my guess is you're probably not that eager to enter into those conversations. So here's what I'll say. Grace to you. You've been given God's kindness through his death and his resurrection, and it is God's kindness that leads us to turn from our sin. You know what you've done. You know what you're currently doing. And more importantly, God knows all that too. And he's still inviting you in. He's still inviting you to lay it down. Remember, God is faithful to us even when we are faithless. And perhaps this is you. Perhaps you're living in willful, ongoing, unrepentant sin. And I'm not saying any of this to heap a bunch of guilt and shame on you. But if you say you are a Christian, does your life look like you are a Christian? Do you care about the things of Jesus? Do you care about the church? Do you care about his word? Do you care about worship? Do you care about lostness around you? Are you broken over your sin? Are you pursuing holiness? Are you pursuing a life that honors God? Or are you just pursuing your own wants and your desires? Listen, man, God is pleased to work in and through people. And thanks be to God that his work to us is not dependent upon me. God is not limited by our flaws and failures. God is still pleased to call people to himself. And sometimes he does this in the most unique ways. But sinner, do not cling to your sin and don't sit here and remain unchanged. God is moving in your heart to call you out of sin and unbelief, to lay down your desires for comfort, to lay down your desires for a husband or a wife that has led you to pursue a relationship that is outside of his will, to lay down your desires for acceptance because in Christ you are already accepted God's desire is to give you more of himself because he is for you and for your good. And this is the only place of peace and safety. In Christ and his will for your life. Lean on Jesus, who became a man to save sinners. The good news of Jesus is that God has answered our doubts. That because of the cross, God does have your best interest at heart. He left perfection to save you. Stop clinging to your sin and run to him. Return from the land of compromise, your own man-made Moab, and rest in the promises of God to you. You are fully known and fully wanted by God and fully loved. So let's repent and believe. Let's pray.